Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. When you hear the call of temptation, do you gut it out or turn your attention to a different voice? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series, Glory of Christ, with this sermon entitled, The Glory of Christ with the Father, which covers John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We're in the fourth week of a series that we're calling The Glory of Christ. Bob and Caleb have led us tremendously well in the Word so far to uh, lead us to the, the center, the epicenter of our faith, which is Jesus and his glory. And uh, we've walked through a number of passages so far, verses that are leading us more and more to marvel at the glory of Jesus and the implications of his glory in our own lives. This morning, as we get into this fourth week, I want to I wanna center in on two words, Two words that we might probably won't naturally connect together as being related and even uh, flowing out of one another. First word is humiliation. Humiliation, the second word is, as you might expect, glory. Now those, again, those aren't words that we naturally say, yes, I'm, I'm gonna put those together. That in humiliation will come glory. Those are usually words that we say, I I want those to be far apart from one another, and one of them I don't want, and the other one I do. And so even as I say these words, there's perhaps some uh, memories coming to your mind where in your life, through various experiences, maybe you have had moments of humiliation. Uh, Some very quick and fleeting, others maybe that have stuck with you longer. And then you are able to think as well of moments of glory, Something that happened that, that brought you a sense of glory, if you will, that you'd always long for. I'll tell you a quick story real quick that, uh, that is, is uh, it's not a big example of, there are many times in my life where I've experienced humiliation for sure, and, and glory to some extent from the human standpoint. But these two always jump out in my mind because they happened my senior year in high school, uh, those who are listening who are in high school hopefully will really resonate with this. Those of us who uh, aren't in high school, maybe we can remember and we can resonate and even sympathize. But my senior year in high school, everything for me in middle school and high school was centered around sports. Everything was centered around athletic performance. It was my whole world. It was my identity. And I had worked every year with this mindset in, in place that I would get to my senior year. And my senior year, more than any other year, would be the year of glory of athletic glory. Well, God did a couple of things that year that were both interesting and surprising that that, uh, actually ended up shaping my faith. The first one was, um, it was the third game of the season in football. I was a wide receiver. We were playing our biggest rival. Early in the game, I ran a route that in the midst of the route, the cornerback fell down. I find myself running downfield towards the end zone, probably no one within 20 yards of me. I'll tell you this, when we watched film the next day, there was no one else in the screen. It was just me. Quarterback sees me wide open, he throws a perfect pass, hits me in stride. All I begin to think is, this is awesome. I'm about to score. I'm thinking about my little celebration dance in the end zone. 
as it's coming into my hands, it nicks my face mask just enough to make me bobble it and drop it. Now that would be humiliating enough, but later in the game, ran the same route and the cornerback fell down. Again, either I was an amazing route runner or this was a terrible cornerback. But clearly I needed help catching because the same exact thing happened again. This time I'm thinking, don't drop it, don't drop it, don't drop it, don't drop it. If you've ever played sports, if you've ever caught a ball, that's the last thing you wanna think because that's when you're gonna drop it. So here I am, the year of glory, as it were, and in the biggest game of the year so far, I've dropped two touchdown passes. Unbelievable humiliation. I wanted to crawl in a hole. I didn't want to get back on the bus. I didn't want to go to school on Monday. I thought for sure that everyone would shame me, that my life, well, here's what I thought. My life is over. My life is over. My identity, everything's wrapped up in this performance, and it's over. Now, fast forward a couple of months. It's basketball season. And we're playing our biggest rival. Different school, but our biggest rival. I'm not making that up. True story. We're down by two points. Clock's winding down. Ball ends up in my hands. I shoot a three-pointer. It goes in. We win the game. Glory. Now this time, I couldn't wait to go to school. Everybody's gonna make a big deal about me when I show up at school. You know what I found out? Here's what I found out. My identity was so wrapped up in that humiliation and in that glory, but nobody else's was. I came to school on Monday after dropping those passes and nobody really cared. My life wasn't over. I came to school after making the game-winning shot and a few people said something, but by and large, their life went on. My identity was wrapped up in that humiliation and in that glory, but theirs wasn't. And one of the things that God began to teach me about that is the, the nature of the human heart. I'll, I'll say it this way. I'll just read these two lines to you. You'll see them on the screen. I started realizing, I didn't know how to articulate it at the time, but I started realizing that the glory we chase if attained, will often destroy us because it fails to meet our deepest needs. I can't tell you how many times I had spent in the driveway growing up hitting a game-winning shot, thinking that if I ever get a chance to do that, there will be glory upon glory that will satisfy me in the deepest ways. And then when it happened, it was cool, but there was no satisfaction. Similarly, the humiliation we fear, if experienced, will often destroy us because it affirms our deepest insecurities. Some of you have, have totally experienced that. Now, it's not, a, it's not drop touchdown passes. It's something pretty devastating that's happened in, in your life. And what you would say, that's humiliation, that's embarrassment, that's shame, that's grief, whatever it may be, has begun to define you because that's where your identity is wrapped up. But listen, don't miss this. What if one of the most glorious aspects of the gospel, what if one of the most glorious aspects of the gospel is that our identity is in fact to be wrapped up in humiliation and glory, but it's not ours. It's somebody else's. It's in the humiliation and in the glory of another that we begin to discover 
that our greatest desires are met and our deepest fears and insecurities are disarmed. Part of the good news of Jesus is that he came and he experienced a humiliation on the cross that was far beyond anything that you and I can imagine, not just physically, but spiritually in what happened between he and the Father in that time on the cross. And in his humiliation, we find our glory. But in his humiliation, he is glorified as well. That's what we're gonna see in the text this morning. We're gonna be in John chapter 17. We're only gonna look at verses one through five, and then next week we're gonna look at the rest of John chapter 17 and see what God has for us in that. I wanna give you uh, the four observations from the text this morning off the top. So here's the four things we're gonna see in this passage. We're gonna see that there's a glorious intimacy that exists between the Father and the Son. There's a glorious intimacy that exists between them. We're also gonna see that there's a glorious authority that the Father gives to the Son. Third, we're gonna see that there is uh, a glorious work that the Son has accomplished. And then lastly, we're gonna see that there is a glorious longing in the Son's heart, in the heart of the Son. A glorious, a glorious intimacy, a glorious, what did I say? Authority, thank you. Second service, man. Anyway, a glorious authority, glorious work, and a glorious longing. Let me read the passage. We'll see where all this comes out. Chapter 17, verse one through five. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is God's word. So the first thing is a glorious intimacy. A glorious intimacy. Right there in the first verse, let me read it again. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. Now, what is, whenever you see a verse like that, when Jesus has spoken these words, you gotta go back and say, okay, what are these words? What is he referring to? So if you look in chapter 16, what is it that Jesus is doing? Well, this is in the context of the upper room discourse, as we call it. This is on Thursday night before Jesus is crucified on Friday afternoon. This is when the beginning of chapter 17 is when Jesus begins what we call the high priestly prayer, which is the longest prayer that we have recorded of Jesus in the Gospels. And what he's talked about so far before he begins to pray in chapter 17 is he's been, he's been telling the disciples what's about to happen. And what he says right there at the end in verse 33, before we get into chapter 17, verse 1, is he says, listen, I'm going to promise you, you're going to have tribulation. It's going to happen. Bank on it. If you're going to follow me in this world, hardship will come. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. That's the last thing he said. Now, he's also been saying in chapter 16 that he's going to go to the cross and that they, he's going to die and these kind of things. But that's the last thing he said. 
Then pick up in verse one, and he says, so after he said these things, after he's told them, this is what you can expect, then he begins this long prayer with the Father. And he starts, and this is where the intimacy piece comes in, he starts by using a word for Father that would have stunned the disciples. Every time he used it, they had heard him use this several times, but each time they would have been stunned. And the word is this. Now, it's a little confusing because the New Testament is written, the written language of Greek. But what Jesus spoke, what Jesus and his disciples would have spoken in that day was Aramaic. So the word in the Greek is going to be a little different word that is pointing to the Father. But the word in Aramaic is the word Abba. Abba, which if you've been in or around church for any length of time, you may have heard this word before, and you may have heard that the the closest English uh, uh, word that we have for it would be daddy, which which is pretty close. Maybe perhaps the best translation of the Aramaic word Abba is my dear father. Nevertheless, whether it's daddy, maybe you even say my dear daddy would be the best way to say it, but there's this intimacy, there's this closeness that exists between the father and the son. And why would this have stunned the disciples? Here's why. Uh, If you go back and you look at all the ways in which God's people would have prayed to God in the Old Testament, they would have never used a word like this. There would not have been this level of intimacy. They would have prayed using addresses of God, uh, the father of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They would have Use words often like Yahweh, Adonai, uh, Elohim, Jehovah. These are all words that we should still use today when praying to him that mean Lord and God Almighty and and the provider and things like this. But there was always missing in Old Testament prayers before Jesus came this deep level of intimacy between God and his people, at least in the way that it was expressed. But Jesus comes onto the scene and he prays. There's 21 prayers recorded of Jesus in the, in the Gospels. We have 21 prayers of Jesus recorded. 20 of those 21, he begins with this word. Abba, Father. The only one he didn't was when he was hanging on the cross and in his last gasp of air, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Surely because in that moment, as he's carrying and shouldering the weight of the sins of the world upon him and the father is turning his face away, uh, there is a sense that that intimacy has been lost as the darkness of the sin of the world is placed upon him. Every other time, he says, Abba, Father. Now for you and I, again, maybe you've been in or around church for, for most of your life or at least a long enough to know that, oh, okay, yeah, that's, I've heard that before. But, but this is profound. There's, there's a profound intimacy that not only exists between God the Father and God the Son, but listen to this. It also is made available to us. So the Apostle Paul, writing later on in Romans chapter 8, 15, he says this. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have, the, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And because you are sons, this is Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is unbelievable. 
Because what's being said now is that this God who had always been seen as the God Almighty, the majestic, the holy, which he is, all of those things, is now the God that draws near, is now the God that is deeply intimate. He's now the father of his people, that we are brought into his family, that we are sons and daughters of this unthinkable, immeasurable, eternal, holy, other, unique, set-apart high and majestic, exalted above all things God. And he's now near. And Jesus is the one through whom that intimacy is available. We now have access to the throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need, as Hebrews says, because of the work of Jesus. And his intimacy with the Father, as we are united to him, united to Jesus by faith, becomes our intimacy with the Father. It's profound. Now, I realize we've covered pretty much one word so far. I'll try to move a little faster. He says this. He says, Father, the hour has come. Okay, I lied. I got to stop again. The hour has come is important. What hour? Is he, is he like, okay, it's nine o'clock. It's not 9 p.m. That's the hour. No, no, no. It's not, it's not literal, the hour. It's figurative. The, the very mission. The, I'm, I'm standing on the precipice of the very reason I came. The very reason, oh God, God the Father, that you sent me. The hour is here. What is he speaking of? The hour that he's looking at is the hour of his humiliation. This is just hours, literal hours before he's going to be hung on a cross, before he's going to be arrested and flogged and sentenced to death in the most humiliating way, the Roman crucifixion. And he's standing there and he says, the hour has come. Now, he also has in view, he also has in view his whole redemptive work. Yes, the cross, but also the resurrection and also the ascension into heaven and then also his return one day. When he comes again. But he has all this in view, and the hour has come. And what does he say when he says that the hour has come? What is he most concerned about? Listen to what he says next. He says, Father, the hour has come. Listen to what he asked for glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. So this is this is this is pretty crazy because he's in the shadow of the cross. He's in the shadow of unthinkable humiliation, and what's his mind focused on? He's focused on the glory that he will get in the humiliation and the glory that will come post-humiliation in the resurrection and ascension. Why? Not in some selfish way that we would say, give me glory, but so that he could turn and give that glory back to the Father. The, The Trinity is for all of eternity past and for all of eternity future, they are in a glory fest with one another, constantly giving glory to one another. The son said uh, that, the, that he will send the spirit. This is what Caleb taught on last week, that he will send the helper, the Holy Spirit. And what will the Holy Spirit do? He will glorify the son. 
What is the son all about? The son's all about glorifying the father. But what is the father about? The father's about glorifying the son. It's this constant cyclical, let me give you glory because there is worthy and honor and holiness due each person of the Trinity in a way that we can't fully understand and that we will spend all of eternity grasping. He says on the cusp of his humiliation, Glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify the Father. See, uh, R.C. Sproul says this. He says, when we seek glory, we do so at the expense of the glory of God. But when Jesus asked the Father to glorify him, it was not at the expense of the Father because the glorification of the Son is the glorification of the Father. A lot of big words. Here's, what's, here's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying that in the humiliation that I'm about to experience, there will be glory. There will be glory. Now, why is that so important? I want you to stick with that question in your mind because I'm gonna come back to it. That in humiliation, there is glory. But let's look at the next verse. What God says next, what what the Lord says through John here in verse two, is we see a glorious authority. He says, since you, speaking to the Father, since you have given him, talking, he's speaking to the third person of himself, Jesus is, since you have given him authority over all flesh, There is an authority that has been given the Son over all flesh. And what is that authority? He says it in the very next breath. He says, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So there's this authority that the Father has given to the Son. And how that works, we don't fully understand. We know that the Son although being equal in power and substance and and glory with the Father, has been submissive to the Father and his role within the Trinity. And in so doing, the Father has granted authority to the Son, and his his authority is primarily over whom he grants eternal life. This takes us back to John chapter 10, where in John chapter 10, in this same book, uh, Jesus says that all to whom the Father gives me, I give eternal life. And those whom he gives me can never be snatched out of my hand, and nor can they be snatched out of the Father's hand. So there's this, there's this authority that's given to the Son to grant eternal life, and there's an assurance that comes with this granting of eternal life through the authority of the Son that is unbreakable, undefiable. It's eternal. And the authority that the Son has is a huge, huge deal. Let me explain it to you this way. This is what he says. He says, I have authority to give eternal life. Now look at verse three. Let me define very clear for you what that is. Verse three is one you wanna memorize. He says very simply and very clearly, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is taking us back to John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That it's only through knowing Jesus Christ that we know the Father. And that's a knowing by faith. And so he says, eternal life is to know God. 
and to do so through his son, Jesus Christ. All right, so here's the question. What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God? Let me, let me present it to you this way that might be helpful. Think of it like this. To know God is to love God. To love God is to trust God. To trust God is to submit to God. To submit to God is to obey God. And to obey God is to glorify him. To know him is to love him. To love him is to trust him. To trust him is to submit to him. To submit to him is to obey him. And to obey him is to glorify him, okay? So what I'm getting at here is the same thing that Bob got at a couple of weeks ago that says this. Uh, there is nothing in the Bible that leaves us with a scenario that Jesus can be your savior and not your Lord. That he can be the one who rescues you but not your authority, so if, if to know God is simply something along the lines of, yes, I say, I, 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 I say that I'm a Christian, I have believed upon him in that sense, but there's nothing that's happening in terms of a love for him, a trust for him, a submission to him, an obedience to him, and a glorifying of him, then we have to ask the question, do you really know him? And it's not gonna be perfect. There's no expectation. There's certainly nothing in scripture that tells us that this obedience out of knowing him is gonna be perfect. It's gonna be very imperfect because we're still in this already not yet, already knowing Jesus, not yet glorified in him in our, in our resurrected bodies. We're in this already not yet process of this body of flesh. But here's what marks someone who knows Jesus. There's growing, growing realities of that we love him that we trust him, that we submit to him, and we obey him. And in doing those things, we, glor we glorify him. Now, this is a problem. This is a problem for modern American Christianity. Because in, a mo in modern American Christianity, we have a real problem. We have created for ourselves a Christianity that leaves obedience as optional. We have, we have created for ourselves an insulated Christianity that takes any and a lot, maybe not all, but a lot of the hard commands of Jesus, and we've tried to kind of shuffle and recategorize them in such a way that instead of it being a command from God Most High to obey and to glorify, it becomes an optional thing over here because it's just really hard and I don't like it. And so we, we give new categories to things. We say things like, well, that's, that's a command from Jesus that just feels incredibly strenuous, so we'll just say that's legalistic. And God says, no, it's not legalism, it's holiness. It's a changed heart. It's someone who knows me, and if you love me, you will keep my commands. That's exactly what Jesus said. If you love me, you will keep my commands, but it's not so that we can be saved. It's the evidence of someone who knows him. To know him is to love him. To love him is to trust him. To trust him is to submit to him. To submit to him is to obey him. To obey him is to glorify him. Jesus' authority is on display in this passage. Fourthly, or thirdly, a glorious work. We look in, in verse four, it says this. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. A glorious work. What is the work that he's speaking of? This happens a lot in scripture, by the way. 
where I say a lot, it happens several times in the New Testament, where uh, the writers of the New Testament being led and prompted by the Holy Spirit speak of things that haven't happened yet in space and time as though they've already been done. So this is why Paul in Romans 8 verse 29 says, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those who he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he has glorified. And you, if you're reading with a critical eye, you go, hold on a second. Glorification is what happens when, when he returns and all of his people are gathered together in his presence and their new resurrected bodies and that we're glorified in his presence. That hasn't happened yet. But remember, the eternal God is not bound by space or time. And so what he sees is, is good as done. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to the day of completion. It's not up to you to lose it. It's all up to him to retain it, and he always will. Those whom he predestines, he calls. Those he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he glorified. Now, the same language is being used here by Jesus, where he says, I uh, have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's done. And you go, well, he hasn't even gone to the cross yet. Isn't that the work that he's talking about? Yeah, Jesus is talking about the work that he did, the life that he lived in our place, the death that he died in our place, the resurrection he achieved in our place, and the return of glory that will be ours with him when he returns. He's seeing it all, and he's saying, it's done. I have finished the work. He's whispering it now to his disciples. He will scream it from the cross when he takes his final breath, and he says, it is finished. It's done. I've done the work and the glorious good news of the gospel is that that's a work that is completely done on our behalf. We don't have to do anything except believe upon him. As Randy has led us so well over the decades, when he told us time and time again, we lost it all, he did it all, we get it all. The glorious finished work of Jesus. And then he says this, verse five, there's a glorious longing. Verse five, and now Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That, is a, that verse is a sermon in and of itself, and I have four minutes. I'll just simply say this, that's pointing us back to Philippians two. Philippians two says that that we should have the same minds as that as Christ Jesus who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself. And he came in, the, in human flesh. He came in the likeness of man as a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What that verse is not saying is it's not, it's not saying that Jesus isn't God. It's saying that there is a glory that existed between father and son in eternity past that Jesus at some level forfeited to come and fulfill the mission to rescue us. He was fully God and fully man in the flesh, but at some level, he forfeited some glory. And what is driving him to the cross, what he's saying right here, right now is this, I'm on the cusp of my humiliation, but there is a glory coming that I cannot wait for to be restored in the fullness of the glory that I had with you, Father, before the world began, before I came in the flesh. I cannot wait to go back. And so Hebrews 12, 2. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What's the joy? The joy is the glory that he knows is coming. Now listen to this. Don't miss this. This is amazing because remember, you believe upon Jesus, you're united to him, which means his humiliation becomes our humiliation. His glory becomes our glory. So you, you read verses like this. 
Philippians 3.8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That I may know him, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then the one that you want a triple star in your Bible is 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, where he says, so we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses it all. In other words, if you're united to Jesus, if you know him, then you will participate in his sufferings. You will share in his humiliation. You will die to self. You will take up your cross daily and deny self. There is humiliation in the Christian life. He promised it. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Doesn't make it any easier. I'm just saying he promised it. But here's what he also promised. That there is glory coming that far surpasses it all. What drove Jesus to be able to endure the cross? It was the glory that he knew was coming. What drives us to endure what he brings into our lives now, these slight and momentary afflictions, it's the glory that we know is coming in the presence of our King. It's what sustains us, it's what strengthens us, it's the true and better song. Let me close with this. An illustration that stays in my head all the time is the illustration I heard years ago that I've used here before, but I just wanna keep bringing it up before us, and it actually comes from Homer's Odyssey. In Homer's Odyssey, there's a lot to tell you, but here's, here's the gist of what I wanna tell you in this, this little story. A big part of the story is this. Odysseus is returning from a long journey, and he knows to get back to his wife and daughter, he has to pass through in his ship with his men, he has to pass through the narrows, and he knows that in the narrows there are these sirens, these vicious, evil beings that present themselves like beautiful women, and here's the kicker, and they sing a song that when heard, you cannot resist. And so ship upon ship upon ship has wrecked into the cliff sides of the sirens and been devoured by them because they were running to something that was not what they thought. And so Odysseus, knowing that this is coming, does this. His plan is, here's what I'm gonna do. In all of the crew's ears, we're gonna put wax so they can't hear the song. But for me, I wanna hear the song. I wanna hear what's so great about it. So Odysseus tells his men, uh, chain me and tie me to the, the mast of the ship. Don't put wax on my ears. I wanna hear the song. But no matter how much I scream and cry and beg for you to let me go so that I can go to the sirens, don't let me do it. And so Odysseus survives and his men survive. But it was a painful resistance. There was an addendum to Homer's Odyssey sometime after it had been written and the addendum was about Jason. And Jason was doing something very similar to Odysseus. He was on a long journey and he had to pass through the narrows just like Odysseus did. But his plan was a little different. He knew the songs of the sirens would come. He knew what was in store but instead of plugging his men's ears and instead of tying himself to the mast, he simply did this. He brought Orpheus along. And Orpheus was known as the greatest musician in the world who played the most beautiful of songs on the lyre and on the harp. And as they approached the narrows, he just simply pointed to Odysseus and he said, play your song. 
And as they pass through the narrows, the beautiful, awe-inspiring, captivating, glorious song of Orpheus drowned out the songs of the sirens. Do you hear me? Do you understand that the song of Orpheus is the glory of Jesus? The song of Orpheus is the, is the song of our Savior, that when we are in the narrows of this world and all the sirens promising all of the glory and the beauty and the satisfaction that this world can offer that will only destroy us, we listen to, we tune our hearts to the song of Jesus and we gaze upon his beauty in the midst of it all, knowing that we're not just gonna survive this life, we're gonna thrive in it in the presence of the glory of Jesus himself. Knowing that one day what we experience in part now will be in glorious full. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have invited us and rescued us and called us into this glory. The glory of you, O oh Jesus. Father, may we be a people who tune our hearts to your better song, who gaze upon your more captivating beauty and all the things that derail us and make us think that there's a glory to be found in something other than you, would you quickly reroute us and retune our ears to listen to your song and to see your beauty? Thank you, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.